seems to be enjoying yourself already this morning, so praise the Lord. Hopefully we'll enjoy the rest of the time together. And if you have your Bibles with you this morning, I invite you to turn with me to Acts chapter 9 one final time. And as you're, as you're getting settled there, um, I do want to give you a very quick update um, on the Horvaths. They had their uh, Christmas service a few hours ago. Um, and I talked to Kale a little bit this morning, and it went great. I think we have some pictures even we might um, throw up there. They had 18 people show up this morning uh, to their Christmas service. And yeah. And, and he said they had others that just couldn't make it. Um, he, he, he told me there were a couple people in particular. First of all, his, um, his language teacher, Krista, um, who he's been learning language from via Zoom for two and a half years, um, came. It's the first time he actually met her in person uh, was this morning. And then the, um, there was another guy uh, by the name of Laszlo um, who lives in the same building where the church is. And he, uh, Kale met him because he's been there working a lot and he's come down to, to check on the progress of, of the building. And, and he showed up. Um, he, uh, Kale said he wasn't brave enough to stay for the entire service, but he showed up um, to kind of just check it out. And so uh, Kale's praying for them. They don't, as far as they know, um, no one got saved that they're aware of, but certainly the gospel was presented and, and relationships were built. And so, so thank you for praying for that. He wanted me to communicate uh, that to you guys. And, and we will be having our Christmas Eve, our Christmas service next Sunday on Christmas Eve. And so as, as Josh announced, be praying about who you can invite. That's going to be a special service, special music, um, all sorts of things. Obviously, a gospel-centered Christmas message, and, and so I'm looking forward to that. Hopefully, you are as well, and, and hopefully, we'll, you know, we'll, we will give the gospel. We'll give an invitation uh, for people to respond, and, and so we be praying, be praying for that. And then, um, just kind of just to give you, you know, you have the full schedule. I'm not going to kind of rehash what Josh went over, but, um, you know, just to kind of let you know um, uh, where we're going for a little bit, we'll have Christmas Eve service. The 31st, I'll actually be out of town. I will be at Mission Focus. Josh will be preaching um, that morning, so come support him if you're here and you're in town. And then as we move into January, uh, we'll take a little bit of time before we get back into the book of Acts. So we'll do some New Year's things and some vision setting and some that, that sort of thing into January. That'll take us a few weeks. And then we'll get back into Acts um, as we get later on into the month. And so, um, you know, be praying about, be, be praying about that. And, and I'm also excited about the 9 a.m. So January 14th, um, Jeff will be teaching 1 Thessalonians. So we're going to keep the same type of um, setup that we have now in here, everybody together. Um, that has been a great success as we went through the Bible together this past year. And, and we'll be doing some specific Bible studies this year, starting with 1 Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians and then moving in. Uh, the second Thessalonians after that. So, uh, so be praying for that and, and, and show up uh, January 14th at 9 a.m. Uh, for that. But this morning, we're, we're going to finally close out this important chapter uh, in the book of Acts. We've taken our time to work through, this will be our, our sixth sermon um, out of chapter 9 alone. And, and listen, I understand for those of you that have been around here for a while, I know that me taking my time through a chapter is different than how Mark Trotter took his time through a chapter, but nonetheless, I've tried to emphasize the importance of, of this chapter that we've been going through because of its significance with respect to the transition that we've been talking about, the transition that is occurring in this book, today's passage being no exception. And as we talked about last Sunday, the back end of Acts chapter 9, we've seen the, the focus shift away from Saul of Tarsus. So starting in Acts chapter 8, the beginning the end of Acts chapter 7 even, we kind of saw the spotlight come on Saul of Tarsus' focus really in chapter 9 through his conversion and all of that. But then as we get to the end of this chapter, he moves off the scene, and now we're back to the focus being on Peter, the, the chief apostle to the Jews. But there's, there's no doubt things are changing. You know, Peter is now moving about all of Israel. He's no longer bound to Jerusalem as he and the apostles were at the beginning of chapter 8 and said the, the persecution scattered the disciples, but the apostles stayed in Jerusalem. And, and Peter is now part of fulfilling the mission that God gave to the apostles in Acts 1.8 of being witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and the uttermost. And of course, the apostle Paul, 
Saul of Tarsus is going to be the primary person to lead the effort to the uttermost as we get through the rest of this book. The uttermost is Gentiles. But Peter is working his way at least through those three other areas. We talked about that some last Sunday when I described those quarters of Israel mentioned in, in Acts 9.32. And Peter had that freedom to move about because of the rest that, that God had brought to the churches in those, reg- in those regions after Saul was moved off the scene for a while. It was the rest that propelled the work of the ministry. And we saw, we took the time to look at that last Sunday and all the, all the pictures that, that, you know, that are in that and, and how that statement is true for us as well, that we too need to seek rest in Christ to, to propel us to then fulfill the mission, to be involved in the mission the, the way that God really desires. But, but, but here, when we get to the end of Acts chapter 9, God had given the church's rest. And then because of that, Peter's getting after it. Peter's getting involved in ministry, and, and he's getting after it, and he's back to the apostolic ministry of performing healings and miracles, signs and wonders, which has always been for the Jews, by the way. It's never been for us, for Gentiles, and certainly not for today. Uh, 1 Corinthians 1.22 says, For the Jews require a sign, the Greeks seek after wisdom. That's always been the focus of that, that, the signs and wonders ministry of Jesus and then the apostles, and not for us, not for today. So Peter was still trying to get the attention of the Jews here in Acts chapter 9 and to point them to Christ. But just because of that, there's still much, much that we can learn from what's happening in and through Peter. We don't heal people today like Peter did. But the principles of his approach and how God works in in ministry, the way God works his plans, are still consistent. So the the specifics of how ministry is done, you know, may be a little different, but the principles are the same. And that's what we're going to learn about this morning. We're going to learn ministry done God's way. And and we need to learn these principles because the, the, what we're going to focus on this morning, because there is a lot of, you know, quote, unquote, ministry that goes on in the name of the Lord that's actually not done God's way at all. And he's not anywhere near it. And it's done man's way with man's wisdom and man's approach. And if we do ministry man's way, using man's wisdom, we're going to get man's results. And so I put that on your outline sheet. If we do ministry man's way using man's wisdom, we're going to get man's results. And man's results are of no eternal value. And so we want to do ministry God's way. And we're going to see God's way by comparing and studying these two miracles that Peter performs at the end of this chapter. And we took a little bit of time last Sunday and and looked at the first one, the healing of the lame man with palsy. But but we're going to go back. We're going to look at that miracle again uh, a little bit. And and then we're also going to look at the second miracle. And we're going to compare them and we're going to contrast them. The second one's an even greater miracle where Peter raises a lady from the dead. We see that in verses 36 through 43. And like I told you last Sunday, these are two very important miracles in this book with very interesting parallels because in them we're actually going to see God's plan in this transition right so we're in a transition book we're in the primary transition phase of the transition book and in these miracles we're going to see God's plan in this transition because even though God is in the process of moving away from Israel right we're going to get back to to Saul of Tarsus the apostle Paul being the main focus as he goes to the world. The final rejection for Israel had already occurred with the stoning of Stephen. We talked about that in detail when we went through Acts chapter 7. But in these two miracles, he's still going to picture for everyone his love for them and his plan for them in the future. And we're going to get to all that, right? So I'm going I'm to lay out for you the real doctrinal application of this passage because it's important. You know, you know we've we, We've, we've hit doctrine heavy when we went in chapter 2. We hit some heavy doctrine when we went in chapter 7. You know, for the most part, we've taken, you know, a, a, an inspirational, devotional look at this book. But, but there's certain passages that we just have to lay out. You have to be able to understand what God is doing from a doctrinal perspective to really be able to understand the book of Acts. And this is, this is one of them. 
And so we're going to take the time to, to lay that out. But, but listen, I'm going to lay, it's going to be layered with a lot of practical application as well. We really won't even get to that until we get to our second point. Um, but all of it shows us how we need to view ministry. So let's look at this passage together and, and see what God's going to teach us about ministry done his way. We're going to start Acts chapter 9, verse 32, and we'll read down through the end of the chapter, or verse 43. So follow along with me. <coughs> Excuse me, and if, excuse my coughing today. I'm, I'm trying to work through it as best I can, but if I have a, a coughing spell, you'll have to, you'll have to forgive me. We'll, we'll get through it. I think the Lord will provide. But um, Acts chapter 9, uh, starting at verse 32, the Bible says, And it came to pass, as Peter passed throughout all quarters, he came down also to the saints which dealt, dwelt at Lydda. And there he found a certain man named Aeneas, which had kept his bed eight years and was sick of the palsy. Peter said unto him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ maketh thee whole. Arise and make thy bed. And he arose immediately. And all that dwelt at Lydda and Sharon saw him and turned to the Lord. Now there was at Joppa a certain disciple named Tapitha, which by interpretation is called Dorcas. No laughing from over here. It's called Dorcas. Uh, this woman was full of good works and alms deeds, uh, which she did. And it came to pass in those days that she was sick and died. And when they had washed, they laid her in an upper chamber. For as much as Lydda was not at Joppa, and the disciples had heard that Peter was there, they sent unto him two men, desiring him that he would not delay to come to them. And Peter arose and went with them. And when he was come, they brought him into the upper chamber. And all the widows stood by weeping and showing the coats and garments which Dorcas made while she was with them. But Peter put them all forth and kneeled down and prayed, and turning him to the body, said, Tabitha, arise. She opened her eyes, and when she saw Peter, she sat up. And he gave her his hand and lifted her up, and... And when he had called the saints and widows, presented her alive. And it was known throughout all Joppa, and many believed in the Lord. And it came to pass that he tarried many days in Joppa with one Simon, a tanner. All right, let's pray, and, and then let's ask the Lord to bless our time together in his word this morning. Dear Heavenly Father, <coughs> thank you so much for the time we have. Thank you for the fellowship that we have in this body. And, and that's just, um, it's just, uh, it's just, it's just obvious in, in just the time that we the joy and the love that we have for each other as we spend time together. and Thankful for the time that we have together this morning. I'm thankful for the time now that we set aside to open your word and, and um, study from it. And so, Lord, I just pray that you teach us this morning as only you can do, that your Holy Spirit has free reign in our hearts and our lives to, to mold us into your image um, and to change us where we need to be changed. So teach us what we need to hear uh, this morning. Speak to us as only you can. I pray that everything that is said is true to your word. I pray that you're honored and glorified through it. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now what we just read about um, are two incredible, incredible miracles of the Lord at the hand of Peter. And, and, and that's an obvious statement. And I state the obvious because sometimes I think we read over passages like this. And we're so familiar with them that they sometimes lose their due majesty. I mean, Peter healed a lame man and he raised a lady from the dead. It's pretty crazy. And so I don't want you to ever forget that the Lord is a miracle worker. And he performed them in the past and he still performs them today. Now again, the apostolic ministry of miracles and signs and wonders, that has all ceased. And we've talked about that some. We don't have time. That's not the point of the, the message today. But, but that, those spiritual gifts have ceased today. There, there are not apostles going around and healing people and raising them from the dead like Peter did in the, in the passage just read. So, so, so just listen to me. Those going around today claiming to do so are liars. And they are false apostles and false teachers. And, and Paul warned us about those folks in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 13 through 15, which said, For such are false apostles, deceitful workers, transforming themselves into the apostles of Christ. And no marvel, for Satan himself is transformed into an angel of light. Therefore, it is no great thing if his ministers also be transformed as the ministers of righteousness, whose end shall be according to their works. And so that type of, of activity doesn't go on today, right? God works differently. We, we have this thing called a Bible that's completed today. And God works through that. He works through his Holy Spirit in us to mold and to change us. And that's not to say that God still doesn't heal and, and, and God still doesn't perform even those type of crazy miracles. He just doesn't do it through us. There are no apostles like there were. That, that office has ended. 
And so that type of stuff doesn't go on today. But just because God isn't working in all of the same ways that he worked in the gospel and in the book of Acts, that does not mean he isn't working at all today. Of course he is. He's absolutely working just as mightily today as he ever has. And therefore, we need to figure out how he works so that we can be a part of it and so that we can get in the flow of what God is doing. And like I said, there are principles in this passage this morning about that, just that very thing, about how he works and, and how we can figure out how to get in the flow of what he's doing. These are principles of ministry done God's way. And the first principle of ministry done God's way that, that we see in both of these miracles that we need to understand about how ministry works today is that it's personal. Ministry's personal. You see, ministry always has been and it always will be a, a very personal endeavor. It is the sharing of life. It's primarily, not only, but primarily one-on-one. -on -one. It's taking what God has given you and investing that into someone else. And we talked about this a little bit last week in that first miracle where Peter found, right? We, we, we took the time to emphasize the word found. And Peter found this certain man in Lydda. But I want to show you this principle in more detail. Look again at Acts 9.33. And there he found a certain man named Aeneas, which had kept his bed eight years and was sick of the palsy. And I told you last week that the fact that, that Peter found Aeneas means that he was searching for ministry opportunities. He was seeking with an intentionality an opportunity to serve the Lord. He was, he was intentional about it. It was on purpose. And this is such a, a, a key component to true biblical ministry. It's, it's looking for someone to invest in, being intentional and prayerful in that search. But, but listen, that search actually works both ways. Because in the second miracle, Peter didn't find the dead lady. The dead lady's friends found Peter. Look at verse 38. And for as much as Lydda was nigh to Joppa, and the disciples had heard that Peter was there, they sent unto him two men desiring him that he would not delay to come to them because, because Tabitha, Dorcas, she had died. And so they sent out, they heard Joppa was only about 10 miles away. And so they, they knew Peter was close and they knew he was an apostle and that he performed miracles. So they were like, let's go find Peter. Let's see if we can save her. And so the woman had just died in, in, 30, in verse 37. And her friends, those disciples in Joppa, sent out a couple guys to go search for Peter. And they found him. And listen, I, you know, I trust that there's no one in here that's you know, physically, physically dead this morning. That'd be weird. Um, but maybe, maybe you're spiritually dead. Or, or you're on spiritual life support. And you need help. And you need someone to come and to minister to you. And if that is you, let me just say, please don't wait for someone to find you. Go find someone that can help you, that can give you the answer you need out of God's word. Take the initiative to go get help. But either way it happens, whether you find someone or they find you, what we see in these verses is that there must be a personal connection for real ministry to occur. And we saw this, a, a, a personal connection. And we saw this with Philip when he ran to join himself with the Ethiopian eunuch. It was personal. It's what Ananias did with Saul, even when he didn't yet trust Saul. So Saul was a persecutor and a murderer. And the Lord told Ananias to go, you know, to go join himself to, to Saul. And he's like, are you sure? You got the right guy. But he obeys the Lord. And there's a good lesson there because the truth is sometimes this level of personal ministry can bring you into harm's way. Ananias didn't know what he was getting into, but he was willing to do it anyway because it's what the Lord had him to do. And so he was obedient and, and we should view it the same way because this type of ministry is something you can't outsource. You gotta be willing to get in and get your hands dirty yourself. And I, and I put this on your outline sheet. If you're not willing to get your hands dirty, then you're not suitable for real ministry. 
if you're not willing to get your hands dirty and, and make that level of a personal connection, you're not suitable for real ministry because you must be willing to get involved at a level where you might get hurt and when you might get burned and you might get your heart broken. But it's what the Lord's calling you to do anyway. This is Paul's philosophy throughout his entire ministry. It is how he viewed the people that were in his life, that God brought into his life, those that loved him and those that didn't love him. He was willing to get personal and give of himself for the sake of the ministry. In Romans chapter 9, he's talking about the Jews, right? In Romans, you have those kind of three, that three-chapter parenthetical where he's, he's focused on, on the Jews who, who did not like him, by the way. He was a traitor. And listen to how he starts that dialogue of verses 1 through 3 talking about Israel and the Jews. He said, I say the truth in Christ, I lie not, my conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Ghost, that I have great heaviness and continual sorrow in my heart. For I could wish that myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren, my kinsmen according to the flesh. He knew that they had rejected him and that God had moved on. Obviously, God had moved on through him as he was taking the gospel to the Gentiles. And it burdened him that his people, his kinsmen, weren't receiving Christ. And he's like, I wish I could take it for him. That, that's how deep it was for him. And does that describe your heart? Does that describe my heart for our fellow man? Are we willing to go that deep for them and make it that personal? Listen to what he told the Philippians in Philippians 1.8. For God is my record, how greatly I long after you, all in the bowels of Jesus Christ. And he just desired to be with them, to invest in them. That was his heart. It was inside him. It was who he was. It was his lifestyle. To the Thessalonians, you know, he said this, 1 Thessalonians 2.8. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were willing to impart unto you not the gospel of God only, but also our own souls, because you were dear unto us. He said, we didn't only give you God's word. We gave you all of us. We imparted our own souls to you. And, and listen, this really begins to separate a true minister from, from, from one who's not. Because it, it, many times it's easy for us to give God's word and give the truth of God's word. It's a lot harder to give of ourselves. And to get in and invest at a level that we're willing to give ourselves to that person. We're willing to pour into the life of another person. Even if that means they're going to do us wrong later. Even if that means we're going to get burnt later. And we're going to be heartbroken later. It's just the way God set it up. Because that's what God did for us. Knowing. He, he went to the cross knowing that not everybody was going to accept him. God commendeth his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, he died for us. And he knew not everybody, and it still burdens him. He's not willing that any should perish. And yet he knows that they will, that some will. And that's the model he set for us, and, and, that, and that's the calling of true biblical ministry, being personal at this level. And, and again, it's, it's we have to be willing to care at, at that level. You know, you've heard the saying, you know, people don't care so much what you know until they know what you care, that you care. And it's so true. They need to, people need to know that we care. So listen, when it comes to the personal nature of ministry, we need to understand, and I put this on your outline sheet as well, ministry is not to be something that we do. It's to be a life that we live. It's not just to be something that we do. It's to be a life that we live. You see, so many people view ministry as a job, as a profession, or, or even an obligation. But they're viewing it that way. From That's a worldly perspective of ministry. And it's because they don't understand the real meaning of ministry. So, so you, you'll hear people at times say things like this. They'll say, man, I... I wish I could get involved in ministry. I just, I just don't have time. Like, what? Like, that, that sentence does not make any sense 
So if you're viewing things the way God views them, if you're viewing things biblically, that sentence makes no sense whatsoever. I, wish I, I, just, don't have, I just don't have time for ministry. Like it's something that you add to your schedule. And I get that we have organized ministries through this church, as we should. If you're involved in New Beginnings, for example, you need your Thursday nights free. But that's all that most people consider ministry. And what I'm saying is don't limit your ministry to that. Your life is to be a ministry for the Lord. We don't have multiple lives. This is not, we're not you know, we talk about this. We, we silo our lives. We have our work life and our church life. and our, that's, that's all from the world. No, we're not to silo our lives like that. We have one life. And it's the life of Christ. That is Colossians 3, 4. Who, when Christ, who is our life, shall appear. Then we shall also appear with him in glory. We are to live the life of Christ everywhere. So when you are in your home, there's no greater ministry than that. To your family, to your spouse, to your kids. Do you view that as ministry? You should. At your job, at school, you should be willing and prayerful about who and when you can invest the life that you have in Christ into someone else. Don't make ministry something you do. Make it the life you live. Make it just the, who you are. Now, to be able to do that, it does, it does presume that you have a life in Christ and an abundant life that you can share with someone else. And if you don't have that, you, you need to do something about that. You need to go find someone who can invest in you. But if you do have a relationship with God worth sharing, then what are you waiting for? What are you waiting on? It's why you are on this earth. We are here to give our lives and live our lives unto the Lord, and we do that as we invest in others. So that means getting personal. Getting involved with others on an intimate level, not just at an acquaintance level. But there's another interesting element to this point that I, that I want to bring out. And that is, however God has gifted you personally, and wherever he has placed you personally, use that for the mission as well. So ministry done God's way is personal in that he wants you to use your personal talents and giftings, what he has personally provided for you, and where he has placed you, whether you chose that position or not. And I say that because when we get to the second miracle of the woman that Peter raised from the dead, I, wa I want you to just consider for a second, what was it? Why was she such a beloved member of that church that they went to go seek out Peter? And according to scripture, it was because she had a ministry to the widows, even providing for their physical needs. Look at verse 39. And then Peter arose and went with them. And when he was come, they brought him into the upper chamber and all the widows stood by him weeping and showing the coats and garments which Dorcas made while she was with them. And obviously we can't know this for sure from the Bible, but I suspect she had a ministry to the widows because she was a widow herself. So it was personal. And because if that premise is true, she would have known what those other ladies were dealing with and how to help them. And listen, you know, we're never here to like praise any individual. That's not what we're about. All the glory for what goes on around here goes to the Lord. But that is exactly what Sherry Trotter did when she started the widow's ministry. And it's just a great thing. She was placed in a position in life that nobody wants to be in, that she certainly didn't choose when Mark passed away. A number of others of you know what that unenviable position feels like. But because Sherry knew her life was ministry, she felt the burden to start a widow's ministry. And she has many other ladies helping her. Helena Doss, and I know it's a big part of that, and there are plenty of others, that, so please forgive me for not mentioning your name. There's many involved. And listen, those ladies can minister to that group in a way that I can't. 
that none of our pastors can because it's personal. And at their Christmas party last week, they had almost 65 widows there. And God's doing great things. So I just ask you, where does God have you? Whether you chose that position or not, can you view it providentially? And view your life as ministry? And how has God gifted you? Because Dorcas was also obviously gifted as a seamstress. The widow showed the coats and the garments she made for them. And so she used that to serve the Lord. So what can you do? Not everybody can get up here and preach on Sundays. We all recognize that. But you can do something. And listen, anything used for the Lord has value. Anything used for the Lord has value, and it's eternal value. You see, the best ministries are personal ministries. So view your life providentially, that God wants to use you wherever you find yourself, because ministry done God's way is personal. But then the second principle of ministry done God's way that we see in both of these miracles is that it's purposeful. It's also purposeful. And what I mean by that is that God has a purpose behind all true biblical ministry that we may not even know about. So not only is ministry about the people that are directly involved, as, as if that purpose is not enough, many times God is doing something even bigger behind the scenes. You see, God's purposes never end. And I say that because when it comes to these two miracles by Peter, God was painting a picture of something much deeper that Peter could never have even really known about probably. And, and, and the same goes for Luke, the author of this book, something he probably never could have known about. Because in these miracles, God was sending a message to the nation of Israel that even though he was moving away from them from the time being, it won't be forever. He's going to save them. He's going to restore them. So these miracles are a great picture of what Paul said in Romans chapter 11, verses 25 through 27. For I would not, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own conceits, that blindness in part is happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles be come in. They're blind for now, but that won't be forever. And so all, so all Israel shall be saved. As it is written, there shall come out of Sion the deliverer and shall turn away godly, ungodliness from Jacob. For this is my covenant unto them when I shall take away their sins. So I want to break down these two miracles and, and show you the doctrinal purpose of what God was doing in them. And the, and the first one is the healing of the man with palsy, right? So the healing of Aeneas. Uh, look at verses 32 through 34 again. And it came to pass, as Peter passed throughout all quarters, he came down also to the saints which dwelled at Lydda. And there he found a certain man named Aeneas, which had kept his bed eight years and was sick of the palsy. And Peter said unto him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ maketh thee whole. Arise and make thy bed. And he arose immediately. So this miracle, not coincidentally, is very similar to one Jesus performed in Matthew chapter 9. And in Matthew chapter 8 and 9, Jesus goes about performing a series of miracles, 10 of them, I think, to be, as, as proof that he was their Messiah. It was part of the kingdom message that Jesus was preaching all focused on Israel. So in Matthew chapter 9, I want to show you Jesus' miracle, starting in verse 2. And behold, they brought to him, they brought to Jesus, a man sick of the palsy, lying on a bed. And Jesus, seeing their faith, said unto the sick of the palsy, Son, be of good cheer, thy sins be forgiven thee. And behold, certain of the scribes said within themselves, This man blasphemeth. And Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Wherefore think ye evil in your hearts? For whether it is easier to say, Thy sins be forgiven thee, or to say, Arise and walk, but that ye may know that the Son of Man hath power on earth to forgive sins, then saith he to the sick of the palsy, Arise, take up thy bed, and go unto thine house. And he arose and departed to his house. So and you can see this in Mark. There's more detail, actually, in the Mark account of, of these miracles. But I, I, I want to show you these out of Matthew. They're very similar. I mean, obviously, they're... You know, there were some, there were some differences, but the, the, the primary difference, I mean, Jesus was able to say, you know, thy sins are forgiven. Peter couldn't say that. Peter didn't have that power in him. 
The other kind of primary difference that is of importance for us is the man was brought to Jesus in Matthew chapter 9, and in Acts chapter 9, Peter found Aeneas. It's actually important to the doctrinal picture because what we see in Acts chapter 9 is that this certain man, which is the same phrase used for the lame man heal in Acts chapter 3, by the way, which was a very important event for Israel that removed their ignorance. We talked about that in detail when we went through that. We don't have time to go back over all of that. But this certain man, Aeneas, was unable to help himself. And he had no one looking out for him. So salvation in the form of healing had to come to him from Jesus. He couldn't go to Jesus on his own any longer or even be brought to him. That time had passed. And so what Aeneas pictures is Israel in the tribulation. It's a picture of the nation of Israel in the tribulation. The name Aeneas means praise. The name Aeneas means praise. And, and their praise was dormant. Aeneas was lame. And with respect to Israel, Jeremiah 17, verses 13 and 14, in a tribulation context, says, O Lord, the hope of Israel, all that forsake thee shall be ashamed, and they shall depart from me, and they that depart from me shall be written in the earth, because they have forsaken the Lord, the fountain of living waters. Heal me, O Lord, and I shall be healed. Save me, and I shall be saved, for thou art my praise. You see, Israel's praise was dormant. In Isaiah chapter 62, verses 6 and 7, in that same context, the tribulation context, that I have set watchmen upon thy walls, O Jerusalem, which shall never hold their peace day or night, yet that make mention of the Lord, keep not silence, and give him no rest till he establish, till he make Jerusalem a praise in the earth. And that, that day is coming again. You see, Israel was to be the praise of God. But in their foolishness, they chose incorrectly and they rejected Jesus. And because of that, their praise has been silent for nearly 2,000 years. But they will be that praise again one day when God saves them and heals their immobility. Jeremiah chapter 30 speaks of this time at the second coming. The tribulation in the second coming context is very clear in verses 5 through 7. Jeremiah chapter 30, verses 5 through 7. For thus saith the Lord... We have heard a voice of trembling, of fear, not of peace. Ask ye now, and see whether a man doth travail with child. Wherefore do I see every man with his hands on his loins as a woman in travail, and all faces are turned into paleness. Alas, for that day is great. So we were talking about tribulation, and then we're moving in to the picture of the second coming. Alas, for that day is great, so that none is like it. It is even the time of Jacob's trouble, but he shall be saved out of it. And then down in verse 17, we see what the Lord is going to do for Israel. For I will restore health unto thee, and I will heal thee of thy wounds, saith the Lord, because they called thee an outcast, saying, This is Zion, whom no man seeketh after. And what kind of healing is God going to do for Israel? Isaiah chapter 35, in this same context, as we move through the tribulation into the second coming and the millennium, it tells us. You can see that context in verse 2. Speaking of Jerusalem in the millennium, it says, shall blossom abundantly and rejoice. The praise is back. Rejoice even with joy and singing. The glory of Lebanon shall be given unto it, the excellency of Carmel and Sharon. They shall see the glory of the Lord and the excellency of our God. And the type of healing is found in verse 6. Then shall the lame man leap. Then shall the lame man leap as a heart, and the tongue of the dumb sing. As they were, he, was, he, he was immobile, he couldn't walk, and his praise was dormant. And he's going to heal the lame man, and he's going to let him sing again, for the wilderness shall break waters out and streams in the desert. You see, in this miracle of Peter healing this lame man with palsy, God is picturing the fact he will restore Israel at his second coming. They will be healed. They will be saved. They will walk and they will praise again. And they will be the praise of God in the millennium. So that's Aeneas. But we have this second miracle with Tabitha or Dorcas, which is sort of an you know, unfortunate English translation of her name. But the word, the word Tabitha, Dorcas, actually means gazelle, a deer or a heart. 
like we just read in Isaiah 35, 6. Merely a coincidence, I'm sure. And a heart in the Bible pictures someone that desires a relationship with the Lord that will run after him. So for example, Psalm 42, verse 1. What, MTT, so what, are the, you know, what are the two most important words in the Bible? Like an ass, right? Because God uses comparisons and contrasts. Well, what's the first word of, Isaiah, of, of Psalm 42, 1? As, as the heart panteth after the water brooks, so panteth my soul after thee, O God. So that's who Tabitha was, a, a gazelle, a heart, someone who desired the Lord. So let's dive deeper, analyze this miracle, starting in verse 36 of Acts chapter 9. Now there was at Joppa a certain disciple named Tabitha, Tabitha, which by interpretation is called Dorcas. This woman was full of good works and alms deeds, which she did. And it came to pass in those days that she was sick and died. And when she, they had washed, they laid her in an upper chamber. And forasmuch as Lydda was nigh to Joppa, and the disciples had heard that Peter was there, they sent unto him two men, desiring him that he would not delay to come to them. And then Peter arose and went with them. And when he was come, they brought him into the upper chamber. And all the widows stood by him, weeping and showing the coats and garments which Dorcas made while she was with them. But Peter put them all forth and kneeled down and prayed. And turning him to the body, said, Tabitha, arise. She opened her eyes. And when he, she saw Peter, she sat up, and he gave her his hand and lifted her up, and when he had called the saints and widows, presented her alive. Now, this too was very similar to a miracle of Jesus in Matthew chapter 9. Again, you can see more detail in Mark's account, but in, 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 in Matthew chapter 9, look at verses 23 through 25. And when Jesus came into the ruler's house and saw the minstrels of the people making a noise, he said unto them, Give place, for the maid is not dead. But sleepeth, and they laughed him to scorn. She had been dead. But when the people were put forth, he went in, took her by the hand, and the maid arose. Very similar to what we read in, in Acts 9. Everyone was put out of the room. The main difference here is that Peter took the woman's hand after she was resurrected. Jesus took the woman he raised from the dead by the hand as part of her resurrection. There's, there's pictures in that. There are reasons for the differences, for those differences, and all the other differences. But listen, they all basically boil down to the fact that, that Peter and Jesus just aren't the same. Jesus didn't have to pray either because life is in him. P Peter had to kneel down and pray before he performed the miracle because he needed the life that is in Christ. But back to the miracle itself, let me give you some key elements that point us to where God is going. So first of all, the, the Bible says that Tabitha or Dorcas was full of good works and alms deeds. She was a doer of the word, and not just a hearer. She was a heart. She desired to seek after the Lord. Secondly, there's a key phrase that we find in, in this Acts chapter 9 narrative at the beginning of verse 37. The beginning of verse 37, it says, And it came to pass in those days. It came to pass in those days. And if you've been to MTT or you've been around here long, you, you probably know, many of you know what that phrase points to. It's the, the, the period of tribulation. Those days points to the time of tribulation. And these are all clues that God gives us to where he is pointing doctrinally. So Tabitha pictures the Jew who does right, who lives right, who runs after the Lord in the tribulation, but dies before the second coming. And in one sense, she's a picture of the faithful servant described in Matthew 24. Verses 45 through 47, who then is a faithful and wise servant whom his Lord has made ruler over his household to give them meat in due season? Blessed is that servant whom his Lord, when he cometh, shall find so doing. And verily say unto you that he shall make him ruler over all his goods. So in one sense, she's a picture of that, but Tabitha dies in those days. And so listen, for those who die in the tribulation, because they're following the Lord and not taking the mark, and doing the good deeds, the alms deeds, according to the word of God. The promise for them is resurrection. There will be a believing remnant. And God will resurrect those tribulation saints who have died and they will rule with him in the millennium. So here's God's doctrinal purpose in these miracles. Even as God is transitioning away from Israel and to the Gentiles, to open up the gospel to the world, God wants Israel to know that even though they have rejected him, he still hasn't rejected them. 
and then he's coming back for them. And when he does get back to focusing on them, if they will just serve him till the end, either the end of the tribulation or the end of their life, they will be saved. And what a great promise that is for them. Now, today it's all different. That, we're talking future. We're talking tribulation, an entirely different dispensation. And so salvation is different and works are involved in salvation during the tribulation. Not today. Praise the Lord. It's grace alone today. And there's today, Jews get saved in the exact same way that you and I do. There's no Jew or Greek, according to Galatians 3.28. But the day is coming where, th where that's going to end. And at that point, the focus will be back on Israel and their individual, their national salvation and their individual salvation through works during the tribulation. So in the midst of this transition section of this transition book, God is painting the picture for the future of Israel. And of course, he's using Peter to do it. Listen, God's always working. And what, that's what we need to get out of this. God always has a purpose. And God's always working behind the scenes, even when we can't see it. And nothing's going to defeat it. So it's our job to just be obedient to the Bible and do what God's asking us to do and get involved in personal ministry. And he's going to do much greater behind the scenes. And we just get to be a part of it. His purpose is always bigger than what we can see. Our vision's way too small. So when you're doing ministry God's way, you can trust he's using it in a big way. And what a privilege it is to be involved in it. So ministry done God's way is personal, is purposeful, and then third, it's productive. God always get done, gets done what he wants to get done. His providence has eyes. It's always way more than we can even dream of. According to Ephesians 3.20, the power that worketh in us is way more than we could ever ask or think. And look at how these miracle stories end. With respect to the first miracle, Acts 9.35 says, And all that dwelt at Lydda and Sharon saw him, saw the, the, the lame man healed, and turned to the Lord. And the second miracle ends similarly. And it was known throughout all Joppa, and many believed in the Lord. You see, when we're working within a biblical framework to share the life of Christ, to, to minister to people that need Jesus, and we're doing it God's way, just, the, just being involved personally and sharing the life that we have with Christ to make disciples, then we can trust that God's going to work. And I put that on your outline sheet somehow. I'm sure I said that way different than it's on your outline sheet, but somehow God's going to work. So we just need to get out of his way and let him do it because he's way more productive than we will ever be anyway. anyway. Listen, I know we like to do his job. We like to be in control. He's better at it, I promise. And in both of these miracle scenarios, so many other people believed on the Lord and turned to him simply because of Peter's obedience. Peter didn't have anything to do with it in and of himself. That was a work that only the Lord can do. But Peter was obedient. That's all he is asking of us as well. He just wants us to be obedient, to do things his way. Again, we don't get to set the def definition of, of how he wants us to work in the ministry. We have to do it his way. And we have to get his word out. We have to invest it in people, rightly divided, all of it. Because if his true word goes forth, then he's always at work. He's, he, he honors his word every time. Isaiah chapter 55, verses 10 and 11 says, For as the rain cometh down, and the snow from heaven, and returneth not thither, but watereth the earth, and maketh it bring forth in bud, that it may give seed to the sower, and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goeth forth out of my mouth. It shall not return unto me void, but it shall accomplish that which I please, and it shall prosper in the thing whereunto I sent it. This is how God works. His word never returns void. It's because it's eternal. Listen, our words are spoken and they're gone. Now, our words can do great good and it can do great damage. But our words are not eternal. They're spoken and they're gone. It's not true of God's words. Psalm 119 verse 89 says, Forever, O Lord, thy word is settled in heaven. Verse 160 of that same chapter says, Thy word is true from the beginning, and every one of thy righteous judgments endureth forever. Eternal means both ways, man. God's word is eternal. Always has been, always will be. Matthew 24, 35 says, Heaven and earth shall pass away, but my word shall not pass away. 
1 Peter 1.25 says, But the word of the Lord endureth forever. And this is the word which by the gospel is preached unto you. So his words are eternal, and according to John 6.63 and other verses, eternal life is in them. And when we are doing ministry God's way, when we are speaking his words and living his words, both sides of that coin, God's going to do something with it. You know, Tabitha did it. Peter did it. And when we do it, God will use it in ways we can't even imagine and multiply it in ways we could never see coming. But again, if we do ministry our way, we're going to get our results. We shouldn't want our results. Listen, I want God's results. I don't, I've told you this before. I don't care about building a big church. I care about doing things God's way so that we can be a fruitful church. And if we are a fruitful church, the numbers, all of that will take care of themselves. Now, I wish this place was full. I told you this just a couple weeks ago. I wish this place was full to the brim every Sunday. But that's not our goal. And that's our goal, and that's where I place my focus. We'll end up doing the wrong things for the wrong reasons. I desire this place to be filled, filled because that means more people are hearing the Word of God. And so my focus, our focus, is on preaching that and leading ministry according to God's Word. And then just sit back and let Him take care of the results. Because we can't see true results anyway. We need eternal vision for that, and we don't have it yet. And we don't ever know what God is doing behind the scenes. But I do know this. I know that he's productive. I know that his word will accomplish what he pleases. And according to Hebrews eleven six, 6, it pleases him when we walk by faith. According to Romans 8, verses 6 through 8, it pleases him when we walk in the spirit. And when we do that, we will do ministry the right way. We will do it God's way. And he will be pleased with us individually and as a church. And what more can we ask for? If he gets glory through, that, through us, those are the only results we need. Whatever else comes our way is just a bonus. But we know that God is not willing that any should perish. So he wants to use us to that end. We just have to be obedient. Be willing to get out of the way. Move our pride, move our flesh aside, and just trust him to work and stay true to God's word and give it out every chance we get. Get personal in our ministry. Be willing to give of ourselves, of our time, of our talents, of our treasure. God made you to contribute. Are you doing that? Do you have a ministry through your life that brings him glory? So if not, let me lovingly say you are failing at life. Because this life is not about how successful you can be according to world standards. This life is about how you can serve him and do ministry his way. And when you do, he will do amazing things with it. And it's just so awesome to be a part of. I feel sorry for those that don't understand that. Because living life for yourself will always lead to disappointment. It is not fulfilling because it's not how God designed you. So find true fulfillment in living in his will and giving your life to his cause. Why would you ever regret that? You won't, but I'll tell you what you will regret. You will regret getting to the end of your life and realizing you did it all wrong, that your priorities were the wrong one. Listen, each day, it's a day that you'll never get back. So why don't you determine today that you won't waste any more of them?